Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, James Shepard. He's an associate professor of internal medicine and infectious diseases at Yale. What's unique about him is he's done a lot of traveling. Uh, he's spoken to various governments such as, you know, India, uh, research programs, and uh, Botswana, you know. So he's got kind of a global perspective on infectious disease, which is very necessary. It's probably very different from someone sitting in a lab that, oh, yes, there's many pathogens, but literally traveling all over the world. So I think this will be a really good call, and I'm looking forward to speaking to him. So thanks for coming. How you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, so tell me, um, what have you been working on the past, you know, 10, 20, 30 years? It sounds like it involves a lot of travel. So what's your work been about? Well, I'm an infectious disease physician. Um, I see patients now at Yale New Haven Hospital. But for the previous 15, 20 years, I have been a TB and HIV specialist working initially in Nigeria, rolling out HIV treatment programs for the U.S.-funded President's Emergency Plan for AIDS Relief. And then I was uh, running the CDC TB and HIV research program in Botswana in Southern Africa with one of the most severe HIV and TB co-epidemics in the world. And then I was seconded by the CDC to the World Health Organization in India, where I was advising the government of India on its national TB program. So I've been, as you mentioned, around, around the globe a little bit, uh, primarily sub-Saharan Africa, but also a bit in India. So what's it like being in one of these areas that's being affected versus just probably other people's perspective, you know, they'll hear about it on the news maybe for a day, or again, if you work U.S. or, you know, Europe, you'll maybe studying samples, but you're not there with your hands in the guts of the situation. Like, what have you learned from? Yeah, um, we um, work very much like we would in the U.S., but we have a lot more challenges. So when you do international work, particularly somewhere where the resources the laboratory support, the human resources are much more limited in terms of numbers. Um, you have to get creative. You have to be able to adapt, to change your plans, to work around issues, to focus on some of the most important problems because you know you don't have the luxury of picking and choosing different things at different times. So you um, tend to focus and work very closely with the governments in the countries that you have been hosted to uh, address priorities. And uh, it's fun and very capable um, organizations of people 
there just isn't that many in the developing world. And so uh, um, you don't have the luxury of having vast human resources at your disposal. Do the governments that you work with, you know, are they pretty responsible? Are they really concerned about their people? Or, you know, uh, is it a charade? I mean, like, what's the reality of it? It depends. It depends on the country. It depends on the particular administration at that time. It's just like any government anywhere in the world. But the priorities can also be different when you're dealing with um, healthcare services and uh, people's livelihoods. And the governments have very limited resources so that the expenditure per capita is so much lower than it is on uh, Europeans or North Americans then certain priorities just fall by the wayside. And so if, for instance, you don't have the funds and the system to provide efficient treatment for a condition, then sometimes, you know, the ministry might say, well, why should we have a diagnostic program if we can't help the people anyway? So you, you, you tend to come up against uh, issues that you wouldn't normally deal with in richer countries. Is there a lot of hope or is there hopelessness or, you know, I know it depends, but in general, uh, what's the perception of these governments? I mean, there's a lot of pragmatism, the art of the possible. They are all very much limited um, primarily by funds. So, you know, the world is still a very unequal place in distribution of wealth. And so they have to make very hard choices for their people because they can't afford to support the same expansive services that, you know, we as, as communities have become used to. You know, you have to understand their motives and the delicate balance that they're trying to achieve with the resources at their disposal and the needs of their people and not, you know, mismatch those or, or make your priorities um, with such lack of perspective that it just doesn't fit properly into their pragmatic needs at that time. How are the different um, diseases treated? You know, if you have, let's say, malaria in a given country, and perhaps it's well understood on how to fight it in other countries, does that help, you know, versus a disease maybe that there's no knowledge or very little knowledge on how to fight it? Uh, any difference there? Yeah, I mean, the global experience um, is very helpful. There is really not much that we haven't dealt with in some place at some time that can't be translated to a similar setting. And, and you know, as I say that, I'm sure both you and I are thinking about the current situation uh, with COVID and the coronavirus pandemic, which... Even now, even with this particular brand new disease that first hopped into a human in October or November last year, we have examples of, of experience and what to do and what not to do um, already in terms of the public health response to the uh, pandemic. So, yeah, usually you, you can translate programs and ideas from one place to another. Hey, what about uh, tuberculosis versus HIV versus the other conditions? Are, are any of them, in your observation, you know, far worse than others? Or do they affect people in a different way that 
I don't know, regardless of the, of the response to the effect the society is that they affect in a different way. Well, it, it, at the moment, I'm writing with a colleague and a, uh, a kind of a, a summary, a, an opinion piece about some perspective on different communicable diseases globally and how COVID and the lockdown and social isolation, which Africa and India has also had to bring in, is um, seriously impacting the management of these other diseases. And you mentioned TB and HIV, and I could mention vaccination programs for measles or polio, malaria control, all of which are being severely impacted by the withdrawal, essentially, of of healthcare workers from communities because of the fear of spreading uh, coronavirus. And one of the things that uh, we want to highlight in this piece is that we need to maintain some perspective because coronavirus will, I believe, ultimately be a seasonal event that we will manage with probably a vaccine, whether it is a fully effective vaccine or not. But these other conditions, TB, HIV primarily, are global pandemics that have been continuing for generations now. And the morbidity and mortality associated with them is likely to dwarf the disease caused by coronavirus. And so we mustn't lose perspective and focus on what really are the primary uh, diseases globally. TB remains the world's uh, biggest infectious disease killer. So it is number five in the global list of causes of death behind things like cardiovascular disease and cancer. But it's the number one infectious disease killer and will remain so even after coronavirus has calmed down. So we need to keep our eye on the prize. Well, if you're saying that these governments are pragmatic, I don't know. I mean, is it, it doesn't seem pragmatic to lock down a whole society and then, you know, tuberculosis and HIV and all that are unaddressed, the measles, and, you know, consequently probably just as many or maybe 10 times as many people will die and be miserable. So that doesn't seem like a very pragmatic response at all. I mean, well, Even in the U.S., you know, they, they call everything elective surgery. So cancer patients can't get help. And it's, it just seems non-pragmatic in the extreme. It seems all fear-based. Well, they weren't, they, it wasn't them that locked down the global economy and the global supply chains and logistics and movement of money. It was us. It was the rich uh, northern countries, uh, primarily from China through Northern Europe and the United States that has essentially shut down the, the global economy and prevented, you know, normal business. And the poorer countries of the world, the sub-Saharan African countries, Asian countries, have followed suit, but really they had no choice and they've not got a great deal to lose at this point because there was no um, ongoing activity or travel or business anyway. So, you know, it's, it would be a, a tricky conversation to point the finger one way or the other. But in terms of pragmatism, you're right. 
our response has been uh, more born of panic as a result of the spread of a new virus um, in front of our eyes, really, as we failed to implement the public health measures that would have been pragmatic and would have avoided some of the more severe aspects of social distancing that we've been pushed into. Yeah, I didn't realize that, well, I guess I should have, it's very obvious, but a lot of these countries are dependent upon, you know, first world medicines and interventions and vaccines and things like that. So that was cut off is what you're saying. So they're, I guess they're doubly uh, troubled. Yes, I mean, their services too have to be safe. I mean, a measles vaccination program, for instance, they need PPE. And where do you think all the PPE's gone? There's none uh, to be had in countries that can't elbow their way to the front of the line. The cold chain for movement of drugs and vaccines, the medicines themselves, most of which are made in China and India, are not moving. There's no supply chain currently, or at least a, a much diminished one. And they're entirely dependent upon importation for most of the raw materials for their programs. So you see that it's, you know, they, are, they cannot operate independently from the richer nations that lock down. Yeah, and I wonder if there would be a requirement, you know, I'm not in any government, obviously, but you know, I wonder if uh, Western governments, for instance, or European ones said, hey, if you don't lock down and do this, that, the other, then, you know, there's going to be no resumption of the supply chain either. And now, who knows how the, uh, you know, these things will be dictated uh, and, and offered and what will be required, you know, in order for these other nations to accept what they're, uh, they're transferring to them. Well, there are, there are other examples of countries that delayed social distancing. Uh, the primary ones right now that you can see are uh, Russia and Brazil, where the case count is exponential. It's one of the steepest epidemic curves of any for the coronavirus. And uh, it's going to be a challenge to open up global, the global economy again, when there are such enormous reservoirs of active viral transmission going on. Hey. What's your involvement then in, uh, in coronavirus? Are you working with these, uh, you know, these third world governments to help them in their response? Or is your role the same but now complicated by the coronavirus? Like what, how has this changed for you over the past few months? Uh, yeah, a little bit of both. Um, honestly, the country I know the best is Botswana. And uh, they have, I think, 30 cases of coronavirus confirmed. They locked down very strictly around the same time that South Africa locked down, which is their biggest neighbor and main uh, trading partner. And so, you know, to be quite honest, their problem with coronavirus is much less than New York City's problem or New Haven, Connecticut, where, you know, I still see patients and COVID patients in the hospital. So I don't know that we have a great deal to offer um, these countries. And from, you know, what we've been talking about over the last few minutes, I think you get the impression that they have much more um, extensive, cost-effective public health systems than the United States has. 
And so they actually have the infrastructure to manage communicable diseases like COVID more effectively than we do. Effectively how? Because they're able to say, stay inside or, or that's it? Or, you know, how more effectively? What do you mean? Well, I, I, they have systems that are more akin to the public health systems that Taiwan or Singapore or South Korea deployed to control the initial spread of coronavirus as it left China. Um, basic public health systems with efficient testing uh, mechanisms, a certain centralized control and organization, um, and then a lot of community health workers that have become very popular for managing TB and HIV because you don't need a PhD or an MD to make sure someone's taking their pills or following up their sick contacts, but you do need someone that's going to be responsible and um, report back. And they have many people that will do this, known as community health workers. So they, they began testing earlier than the United States did because they used the WHO coronavirus test. And they had lots of um, uh, people in the community to do case detection and follow up of contacts. And at the moment, and it remains to be seen how this will continue, disease burden from COVID is much less than the U.S. Huh, interesting. I wonder if you could say uh, in terms of reaction to you know, COVID-19, the U.S. is a, a third world response. Well. That it wouldn't even be accurate, but, you know, uh, not as good a response as some other countries. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that I, you would find most of my colleagues agreed that our response has been denial until the face of the, the problem uh, became so steep that we had no option but to social distance. And uh, the African countries have been much more proactive. So what, I mean, how do you think that this is going to play out based on your experience with other diseases that are persistent, you know, that are not going away? Nations have been handling them for decades, sometimes longer. What, what do you see the future of, you know, COVID-19 being in terms of response of various governments, you know, over the next six months versus, let's say, a few years from now? Well, I think, let's say over the next 18 months, I think covid and the coronavirus will um, come back in a couple more waves, but uh, steadily natural immunity will be building up in the communities. A vaccine may become available in the middle to late next year at the earliest, so it might be deployable for the fall season of 2021. And I think that the disease will moderate so what we see for most new pathogens is that their tendency is to become less virulent as they uh, spread in a new host. So I think the coronavirus will, although awful and, uh, you know, has exacted a horrid toll on us this first round, will um, recede in its um, destructiveness and we will be left with our old friends HIV, which approximately 38 million people on the globe are infected with and will need lifelong treatment. Um, TB, 
which is, as I mentioned, has been the number one infectious killer forever and remains so and continues to infect millions of people every year, new infections, and is becoming increasingly drug resistant and harder and harder to treat. And we don't have a vaccine for either TB or HIV. And there isn't any prospect of one in the near future, that's for sure. And then if you think about, you know, diseases that we stop worrying about in North America, like measles and polio, measles particularly, which is much, much more uh, infectious than coronavirus. It has an R number, a reproduction number of, say, about 15. So about 15 new cases arise from each case of measles. If the number of people who are vaccinated in a community starts to slip. And if you look at the news today, for instance, about 60% fewer kids in New York City have been vaccinated over the last two months compared with last year. So there's a cohort of children, and this is probably global, because as I mentioned, the supply chains are down and vaccine hasn't been shipped anywhere and healthcare workers don't have PPE to administer it anyway. So there's probably a global cohort of children for the last two months or so who've not been immunized against possibly the most infectious disease that we deal with on a regular basis. And so I fear that we're going to see resurgence of global measles as a result of the COVID um, response. And it's a, it can be a deadly disease. It, it, its highest burden of disease, its highest morbidity and mortality is in children, in contrast to coronavirus, which almost by far and away affects the elderly much more. And so the uh, impact of measles is potentially just this year going to be almost as severe as, as COVID. Oh, yeah, I didn't realize about this, this interplay and what's going to happen. Very interesting. Yeah, it's what a sort of um, high sort of altitude global um, existence sort of gives you, a sort of an idea of how systems and, and diseases and you know, the nuts and bolts of, of uh, the global relationships can, can have a big effect on things. And uh, polio, you may have been aware, was close to elimination as the second human infection to be wiped off the globe, the first being smallpox. And the um, global community, uh, led by the WHO and the Gates Foundation and others, CDC, were um, on the final stretch to wipe out wild-type polio transmission from the last three countries on Earth that it still exists, those being Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Nigeria. But unfortunately, just as I mentioned with measles, uh, those programs have been halted because of the challenges of doing them safely during the coronavirus pandemic, the lack of PPE, the lack of the cold chain for the measles vaccine, uh, the polio vaccine. And the um, lockdown in Pakistan um, 
and Nigeria to uh, as a response to coronavirus. And so I think that we have uh, taken a step backwards and it will be years now before polio is eradicated. Amazing. Hmm. It's very good. What, what's the best way for people to get more of a, you know, in addition to listening here, I mean, how can they get more of a global perspective? And do you think that, I mean, when they're in any given country, I would think that would help them, you know, estimate the future, figure out maybe the future and what's going to happen. I, I would guess that you have, you know, a pretty good sense of it. But uh, what's the best way for people to learn more at this point, based on what you're looking at? Um, well, there aren't really any great single sources. You know, obviously, the World Health Organization is the global um, meeting place for all health-minded people from all countries. But it is a highly bureaucratic organization, and it certainly doesn't deserve all the uh, um, attacks that it's uh, been under for its response to coronavirus. But um, I fear that the funding challenges that it's going to face as a result of the U.S. Uh, withholding, you know, it makes makes me wonder where one would um, really go and, and discuss and focus on global health priorities. Uh, there are two major um, philanthropic organizations that focus on global health priorities, the Gates Foundation and the Wellcome Foundation in the United Kingdom. And uh, on their websites, you can see, you know, all the current issues and focus and uh, get a lot of information there. But sadly, our priorities are very much um, inward looking. And I fear that with the coronavirus and the impact that it's had, particularly on the United States, that has potentially the deepest pockets to help other countries with their own healthcare programs. Coronavirus will turn our gaze inward and even more so TB, HIV, polio, uh, malaria, schistosomiasis, all of these programs will suffer as a result. That's true. Hmm. I suppose there's some National Geographic explorers and they thought that the same thing may happen with uh, you know the Earth itself and with environmental concerns. So, yeah, hmm. it's not good. Yeah. Well, James, very good. Thank you for your perspective. It's very useful instead of just a, you know, a very narrow one. That This, this broad one's excellent. So I, I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you, Richard. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.